Dr. John Cressides was just a toddler when astronauts first landed on the moon. But by the time he was five, he was obsessed with the moment. My first Halloween costume was an astronaut, so I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> it sparked a passion for space that only grew with time. Today, Cressides is the Moog Professor of Innovation and SUNY Distinguished Professor of Aerospace Engineering at the University of Buffalo. More importantly to you and me, he's the guy keeping satellites and objects in space from crashing into each other. Welcome to Driven to Discover, a University at Buffalo podcast that explores what inspires today's innovators. My name is Corey Nealon, and I will be your host for episode one, Space Junk. Dr. Cressides, can you take us back to your childhood and tell us what first inspired your curiosity with space? Absolutely. So my father had a National Geographic magazine. We have a liftoff, liftoff on Apollo 11. And my twin brother and I played that over and over again about the Apollo landing. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And it had a little record on it that we would listen to over and over again until it actually broke and we couldn't listen to it anymore. And that's what really drove my passion into space. So over time, though, you become a professor. I mean, when did you make this pivot to academia? Well, so I... I got my dream job as a postdoc at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. I got to work on real missions. And at the time, I was applying to be an astronaut. Um, didn't make the cut. For mission specialists, the vision requirement was 2200. I have much worse than that, so I couldn't even make past the eye test. And that's fine. So I wanted to see what else I can do. And I loved working at NASA. And the opportunity came to be a professor. And NASA wanted to keep me on, but I said, hey, can I try this academia and see if I like it? If I don't, can I come back to NASA? They said, yes, you can. Uh, went out to academia, loved it. I get the best of both worlds. I get to work with NASA and all these other agencies and um, do the research that I enjoy as a professor, too. So now, 20-some years into your career in academia, you work tracking space debris, otherwise known as space junk. What led you into this field? Well, it's just a natural progression. I do a lot of work in estimation theory and looking uh, when I worked at NASA, I developed systems that not only track satellites, but determine how they turned is basically where my main area of research is. And that, that requires a lot of uh, neat theoretical work that I liked. And it was just a natural progression that I would go into looking at space. Like I saw that this was going to be a problem and like a lot of us, and it was just an area that excited me. It was something that I have a passion for because I know where this is going to lead if we don't fix the problem. Let's backtrack a bit. Can you just tell us what exactly space debris or space junk is and why we should be concerned about it? Yeah, so space junk is defined as anything that's not useful anymore. So it can be something that fell off of a satellite, or it can be an actual satellite that's no longer working. And it's a pretty broad definition. So, for example, Ed White lost a glove that floated away when he did his first spacewalk. At that time, that glove was considered space junk. That kind of gets to another uh, question I wanted to ask is, roughly how many objects are we able to track in space right now? So currently we track about o over 30,000 objects that are about softball size or bigger. That's the limit of what we can do with our current sensors. What we're really worried about is the stuff we can't see. It's estimated anywhere between one centimeter and 10 centimeter. It could be up to 900,000 of those objects. And you asked about the issue, what the problem is. They're traveling very fast at 17,500 miles per hour. And so I like to always use the Carolina analogy. If they're in the same orbit, meaning 
they're the same lane in terms of the cars. They're not going to collide. But we have different orbits. We can have an orbit around the equator. We can have one around the pole. And now you're at the T-bone intersection case. So you can imagine two objects at a T-bone intersection going to 17,500 miles per hour. That would be a very violent collision. And that's stuff that we're very worried about. And just to put that speed in perspective, you're talking 17,500 miles per hour. Um, faster than the speed of sound? Yes. Faster than a speeding bullet? Yes. Can you tell us how long a typical object might stay in space? That's another problem. We really can't tell how long stuff is going to stay up there. In low Earth orbit, talking a couple hundred miles, it, it'll eventually come back down uh, depending on a lot of factors, unfortunately. But we just don't have very accurate models of how how many air molecules are up there. So uh, we can do some predictions, but um, unfortunately, they're not as accurate as we want to be. Iridium Cosmos, those are two big satellites that, that uh, we didn't think were going to collide, and they did. So that's a problem. That we're sent a message that we're not tracking the stuff as well as we thought, even the big stuff. We do a calculation called the probability of co collision. It's based on a lot of math, but we can estimate that. And anything greater than one ten thousand chance of colliding, we will tell one of those satellites, you should maneuver away. Those two satellites did not meet that threshold. So I, told, I always like to say they, they won the bad lottery that day and it just happened. It's only on a probability and they, they collided and caused about 500 pieces of the debris. That gets us to another uh, topic I was hoping to discuss, um, which is the Kessler syndrome. Could you describe that to our audience and, and what it means? Yeah, so Donald Kessler in 1978, a NASA engineer, had come up with this theory that said basically if a couple objects collide with each other, it's going to cause more debris, and that debris is going to collide with other debris, and now we're going to get a cascading effect where we get to the point of having so much debris up there that it's not worth to put satellites up there. And also, we have to think about, we have to get through that debris field to get to the moon and Mars to get our astronauts. We're putting our astronauts in harm's way, too. And astronauts have been in harm's way before uh, on the International Space Station with Space Junk, correct? Correct. There's been a couple instances where the astronauts had to go to the escape hatch. Uh, Fred Whipple in 1947 invented what's called now the Whipple Shield, and that can handle little small impacts. There's over 100 Whipple Shields in a space station to protect it from small stuff. But astronauts out there doing their missions, they're completely vulnerable to it. Is that something that kind of keeps you up at night? I'm actually very worried about the astronauts being exposed when they're out there in space and doing their missions outside of the space station, doing spacewalks. I don't mean to sound pessimistic about it, but I also like to be a realist. I don't think it's a question of if it's going to happen. I think it's a question of when, if we keep doing this, that someday an astronaut's going to be hurt in space. You know, one of the things I think people think about is, um, you know, is this space degree going to fall from space and hit me while I'm walking around on my day-to-day -day, uh, life? When the satellites come back in, they most of the stuff burns up as it comes back in. Uh, we, we and, and most countries follow this. We don't build satellites with materials that won't do that. So the satellites that we're building here at University of Buffalo are all made out of aluminum. That's going to burn up. We don't make them out of titanium because that generally won't burn up. And the bigger satellites, and not every country follows this, unfortunately. We, we know the two ones that don't is Russia and China, but um, our, our allies and us, we any satellite that has thrust remaining has to do a controlled entry over the Pacific Ocean in an area that's very, very unpopulated. So 
we can very much control this. Now, obviously, all the stuff that China has been doing lately with uncontrolled is getting people worried, and some of it did come close to some populated areas, and one in particular. But um, this thing, the chances are small. And really, what what can you do about it? <laughs> so, live your life. <laughs> no human has been hurt by anything coming back in to this point. We're sixty years into the space age. Is there any way to clean up or remove space junk? So again, a lot of great ideas and a lot of great experiments that's really nice in the sense of showcasing this, but nothing practical, unfortunately. And I don't see anything practical for at least the next 10 to 20 years. You recently received a $5 million grant to help in your efforts tracking space debris. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So it's called the Space University Research Initiative. It was sponsored by the Air Force and multiple universities involved, myself and Moses Suda from UB. And we also have some great partners. We have partners from Purdue, MIT, Pennsylvania, and Georgia Tech. So I think we have a very strong team to tackle this problem. It was an extremely competitive effort, and we ended up winning it. So the grant's going to look at a number of things, but we want to look at space domain awareness is one of the issues that we're looking. Uh, so our adversaries are doing things right now. For example, there's an attack on our satellites every day. Now, it's not a, a major attack in terms of a missile attack, but they're doing more annoyance-type stuff. And we have to try to overcome these issues. And one of the things in space is it's very difficult to get that domain awareness. So the research questions are, what do we need to do to be able to do that? How do we need to optimize our sensors, put sensors in space? The other issue, uh, I, the moon is starting to get very popular in terms of strategic um, assets and be able to do that out in the moon. That makes a problem a thousandfold bigger than it is right now. And so we're looking at that. Uh, the Air Force is not without their sense of humor. They have this thing called the cone of shame, and you can't see anything with that within that cone of shame. So if our adversaries were to put objects within that cone, right now we can't see them. So how are we going to do this? Um, we're not particularly worried about the moon right now, but in 10 to 20 years, it might be an issue. So we have to start doing that basic research that universities do well to be able to help to the point and start transitioning that basic research into more applied and getting to technology to be able to do that domain awareness. How are students involved with this work? So we have both undergraduates and graduate students involved in this. The graduate students are doing the, the research that's we're trying to do in that space domain awareness. The undergraduates are building satellites for the Air Force. We won also this program called the University Nanosat program with the Air Force, and we're getting ready to deliver our first satellite. And that satellite's all done by undergraduates. They're learning tremendous things. What I tell the undergraduates is all the design reviews that I went through at NASA when I was working on satellites, the Air Force is making them go through the same thing. And its students... Um the future generation who's going to be helping solve this problem with space debris, right? They're going to have to. That's my. That's what I say. So the space age didn't start until 957. So we're talking 65 years ago. And look at what we're talking about right now. Imagine where we'll be in another 65 years if we don't do anything. I think for sure Kessler syndrome is going to be true. So unfortunately, like a lot of things, we pawn off our, our problems onto our children. So this generation is going to have to solve this problem. So what in general do you see as the future of aerospace exploration? So I think this is a great time to be an aerospace engineer and to get in the field. Um, Look at the excitement that Apollo created. And right now with all these satellites that we're building, 
it's given a gr- tremendous opportunity for aerospace engineering. I think it's the second Apollo, and we're talking about going out to Mars and things like this. So this is a very exciting time, a lot more exciting time than when I was a student. So I would have loved to have been a student right now. And I think uh, the excitement that these students bring are, are going to bring us at a forefront for space exploration and also solving the space junk problem. Dr. Crisides, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been a great time. Thank you.